We're going to be jumping into the second chapter. Before we do, I want to just cover a few things that are a bit of an overview on the book that will help us get the chapter and the whole book itself into what's going on. Um, one of the, I always like to give my sources, as most people know, um, uh, the one really, really good source for, for studying this is the work of Dr. Darian Lockett. Dr. Darian Lockett, and a lot of, a lot of what I pulled from my study this morning is from his uh, course on the survey of the general epistles, which kind of really brings us into what we're going on. James is actually one of a set of, of letters. There's, there's a set of seven letters. They're called the Catholic epistles. Now, Catholic doesn't mean like Catholic religion, so don't think that way. Catholic just means universal. These are universal. It means they weren't written to a, a, a specific place, but they were written in general for, for a broad section of, of the church. And, and there's seven of them. Now, that number's on purpose. And they, uh, just like there are seven letters written by Paul. I don't know how many have ever counted them before. There's seven letters that have been collected written by Paul. The book of Revelation was written to seven churches specifically. This was in, this is a number of completion and it's on purpose. I mean, I don't know how many people understand how our Bibles are put together and this is all part of that. Um, it was considered a very distinct and unique section. So when you read James, I encourage you, read it, but don't read it by itself. Read it with Peter, uh, the two letters to Peter uh, that Peter wrote, the three letters that John wrote with Jude. Read it as a whole, because the, when the early church, they actually took, they have manuscripts where they took all seven, and they added the book of Acts to it, and they bound them together, and it circulated as, as a unique work that, that the message from them would be, would be, uh, appropriated throughout the church. They were written by James, Peter, and John, who were considered the, the pillars of the church, and Jude. Now, it's, it's fascinating to me. The first letter is written by James. The last letter is written by Jude. They're both brothers of Jesus. They're both earthly brothers of Jesus. So, so one thing that's kind of a misnomer that's come to us is James actually is Jacob or Yaakov. It's in the Greek. If you look at it, Jacobus in the, in the, in the Greek. I don't know why it comes to us as James. I think it probably has something to do with the fact that it came into English sometime around the time of King James. Just saying. Anyway, some of you will get that later. You know, figure it out. Um, the, and the, there's common themes and teachings throughout. Uh, Augustine uh, points this out. It's one of the things he points out. You get, you get avoid being dry springs in Peter. You get avoid being waterless clouds in Jude. And you get avoid having dead faith in, in James. It's the same theme. That same subject is, is given from a different angle and a different perspective. So as, um, as Pastor Zeke pointed out last week, the author is, is James, the brother of Jesus. This is a real letter. Now, what's fascinating about it is he's following this pattern. There's a set of letters that go out called the diaspora letters. Diaspora means those in the dispersion, those that, that are out among the world. They were, they were exiled from, uh, from Israel. It's a set of letters that the elite priests would write. They would write to all the, Jew, the uh, Jewish congregations around the world about faith and practice, about how to, how to maintain your identity, how to stay separate, how to, uh, you know, when the dates were for the feasts, all these types of things. And, and it's been noted that James is following this same pattern um, in, in, in sending this out. And he follows the pattern of something called wisdom literature. Anybody heard of wisdom literature before? Two people, okay. Anybody heard of the book of Proverbs? 
Just heard a little book of Proverbs. Okay, book of Proverbs. That's an example of wisdom literature. Um, you, you have some in Psalms, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, Song of Solomon, interestingly enough, is, is connected with uh, wisdom literature, Job. So uh, he writes it, and what, what you get is you get these moral exhortations, these short little moral exhortations that would have been really common in the Greek world. They would have been used to him and seeing them, but he gives it a Jewish flavor. It's very much patterned after Jewish thinking is how he's doing this. So, And I said all that because... It's important that we understand who his audience he's, he's writing to. He's writing to Jewish believers outside of Israel. He starts right off to the 12 tribes, to those in the diaspora. All these were terms that referred to, uh, to, uh, um, uh, to Israel, to the nation of Israel. Um, and, and interestingly, there's nowhere ever in any literature that the 12 tribes ever refers to the church as a whole. It always refers to Israel. Um, the diaspora, again, is not typically a metaphor. There's only one place that the, the diaspora is actually a metaphor for the church, and that's in First Peter. Other than that, it always refers to the nation of Israel. And it's a, the, the, that term diaspora was actually a negative term. To be a part of the diaspora meant the reason why they were spread out is God judged them. They were spread out because they were in exile, God judging them. So why would he write a letter to people that God judged? Besides the fact that, you know, he wants to encourage, he's, he's writing to encourage, writing to build them up. Because the Messiah of Israel had come, which means the promises to the nation are being fulfilled. Why would he call on the 12 tribes who were long ago dispersed, hundreds of years dispersed? Because Jesus, the King, the Messiah had come and he is fulfilling all things. There is hope. God is faithful to his word and he's going to carry it out. That's how he starts. That's the beginning of the letter. That's what's going on here. And, and so there's, a, there's a, another pattern that he follows. In the front of my case there, there's a book in the very, very front. I forgot to bring it up. Um, there's a pattern he follows. It's called the two ways motif. It's the two ways motif. It's a very traditional uh, way of writing. Um, thank you. And uh, it's, it's, it's a tool that's used for teaching discipleship, to teach young disciples. And it's called the two ways. And it's, 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 it's the displaying of polar opposites, okay? It's showing the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. There's the way of life. There's the way of death. And, and this is used uh, quite a bit in the time in wisdom literature. In fact, I, I pulled this example out. This is from uh, a, a letter that was written uh, probably near the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. It's an ancient, ancient letter. And it starts off just like this. There are two ways. Two ways there are, one of life and one of death. Now the way of life is this. And you turn a few, page, few pages later, it says, now the way of death is this. Now... That's, this is from, a, from a, something called the Didache. The Didache, the teaching of the 12 apostles. This, if you ever get a chance to read it, it's short, excellent. I, uh, I hope you do. But here's my point, And this is the thing that gets me. Is that when we look at Scripture, when you're reading Scripture, these guys were following the literary styles, the patterns of their time. At the same time, they're being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because when you see it and you understand it and you read through the book, you can see the pattern. And when you see the pattern, you understand what he's trying to communicate and how he's trying to communicate. And that's the pattern he's using here is this two ways pattern. This pattern of life 
versus the pattern of death. And how he puts it, he puts it, he says, we're to be perfect. Now, let me say this. Perfect does not mean like perfect sinless. Perfect means to have a whole faith, a wholeness to us. There's to be a realness to our faith that's to be lived out whole and complete in all our lives. And what's the opposite of that? Being double-minded. Being double-minded. And so we're going to see this as we jump into chapter 2 and 3 and further on. You're going to see this, that he's contrasting what it means to have a whole faith, a complete faith, a whole life versus a life that's double-minded. All right. Um, the path of life is what? It's guided by the word of God. It's guided by the law of God. It's guided by God's wisdom. What's the path of death guided by? Desire, soulish wisdom, earthly wisdom, demonic influences, all these things he contrasts. And so we're going to see this pattern. It'll help us understand the letter, what, why he's writing it. It'll, it'll, and he's, what is he trying to do? He's trying to strengthen the moral foundation of the disciple. He wants you and I to have the moral character of Christ. And that's the, that's the goal. The goal is for the disciple to be strengthened and built up into the moral and virtuous character of Christ. To do that, he also needs to speak to and weaken our vices and our foolishness our vices, and our foolishness. So he will pit these things next to each other in order to encourage us to wholeness and discourage double-mindedness, all right? So the structure of it, you know, we, we touched on the, you have the, it opens up with, as a letter. The first chapter, which Pastor Zeke covered last week, is it's a, it's a lots of small proverbs that are connected together by catchwords, and they're not a single thought, but what they really are is a table of contents of the rest of the letter. If you read the first chapter and you go read chapters two through five, you're going to see everything in two through five was introduced in chapter one. Everything connects back. There's this interconnected. So he's like, he's telling you everything he's going to say. And then he dives down in, in the rest of the book. All right. So where we're going to do, go this morning, he has two points for us in chapter two. There are two things in chapter two. The first thing he talks about in the first half of the chapter is partiality versus the law of love. Partiality versus the law of love. And the second thing that he talks about, he gives us a mini essay on, uh, on the, the concept of faith and works. Now, I say it that way on purpose because it's not faith versus works. And we'll see that hopefully when we get there. All right, so let's jump in to, um, to the first one. And I, I want to, you know, oops, hang on. I hope my computer cooperates. I may just have to actually open a Bible and read from it. Wow. Okay, so what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to read the text. Let's take a look at the text. And, um, and then we'll break it down and we'll get into sections. So this is the first section. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? but he doesn't have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And I just read you the whole second half of the chapter. Maybe I'm not supposed to do the first half. So, this is what I'm going to do. Go read the first half. (laughs) No, I have it here now. Thank you, Mike. I have it here. Go read the first half. It's fantastic. Um, And this is, I'll give a highlight on it. And I'm going to jump into the second half. I'm really sensing that we need to spend a, a half a minute longer than I planned on the second half. But they tie together. Let me tell you what's going on in the first half. He says, he says here's, the, here's the sentence that says the whole thing. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Let me read that again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I'll tell you what hit me when I read that. He's putting faith and works together in one sentence. If you hold faith in Jesus Christ, you won't be partial. He doesn't say if you hold faith in Jesus Christ, you'll have a creed. He says if you hold faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to live and act a certain way towards other people. And he gives this example. He says, look, he says, there are people who come into your congregation. And, and, and one person comes in and they're wearing a gold ring and they got fine clothes on. And another person comes in and they're poor and they're shabby. And what do you do? You pay attention to the one who's fine. And you say, hey, come here, sit here, sit here. We want you to be right in front. And then you take that poor person, you say, stand over here or sit down at my feet. And you've made distinctions among yourselves, which become, and you become judges with evil intent. He says, listen, hasn't God chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? What is he saying this? He's saying, look, he's saying, what you're doing is you're judging with human judgment. You're making human judgments. And when you're making human judgments, you are show, you are putting yourself in the place of God. You've taken these two individuals who both are in your presence as an image of God, and you have put one above the other. He said, that's a human way. That's worldly way. That's the way the world judges. If you have real faith, then you will see both of those people are created in the image of God. You won't have partiality. How often do we do that? How often do we look at somebody and immediately make a judgment? Bam. Immediately make a judgment of their worth, of their value. And what he's saying is the the moment you've done that, you are double-minded. 
Let not that person think he will receive anything from the Lord, he said earlier. You are double-minded. Why? Because that is not an expression of true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. True faith in the Lord Jesus Christ says what? This person is created in the image of God. This person is created in the image of God. In fact, he goes on, he says this. He says, that person who was poor, wasn't he chosen to be rich in faith? And in the Greek grammar there, that Greek grammar, when it says poor, it actually says, the grammar points out poor in the eyes of the world. That person who the world puts in a lower status, how, what, what would you say if that person was rich in faith and an heir of a kingdom? Maybe that person took the words of Jesus to heart that said, do not store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. And here this person comes walking into your midst who's got treasures in heaven, who if they pray for you, it's going to happen. And you judged them by status of the world. You looked at them like they were poor. That's what he's saying here. Saying, don't look at, that's the way the world looks. You need to have God's judgment. You need to look the way God looks, and God looks at the heart. Now, here's the thing. You can't see the heart. (laughs) So you have but one thing, to act in faith without partiality towards everyone. That's what he's saying. That's what this whole section is about. He says, look. He says, he goes on, he says, but if you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich ones who, uh, uh, who oppress you, who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? He's like, look, you're using this human status, and how many people who have this status that you put up here are using that status to tear down the name of God? Is that not happening today? Why is it so quiet? How many people use their status in the world to tear down the name of God? All right, I'll make it plain and simple. I literally read a person who is famous in the media, very famous in the media, who said this. He blamed, this is his words. I'm not exaggerating. You can look it up. This is his words. The attack on the Capitol is directly because of Christianity. It's stupid Christians is why the Capitol was attacked. But this was a famous person in the media. Oh my goodness, somebody in the media came in the door. What are we going to do? He's saying you need to look with the eyes of God. He says if you fulfill the royal law of of the scriptures... Love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of all of it. He who said, do not commit adultery, do not murder. If you don't commit, if you do commit, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What's he saying here? He's saying, look, first of all, First of all, get this. What is he using as the standard for how we're to behave? The law of God. The law of God is the standard of perfection. He holds up the law of God. When he he says, love your neighbor as yourself, how many know that that's in the law of God? That's Leviticus 19.18. He's quoting from Leviticus 19.18. He's quoting right out of it. This is the standard right here. 
Now, when you live less than that standard, guess what? You haven't just broken one thing, you've broken all of it. Now, let me, let me just build that concept for a minute. Let's just talk about it for a minute. Let's say, I'm going to, uh, let's say you have someone, I'll just, I'll pick on a person X over here. I don't want to pick anybody. I'll pick on Pastor Terry. He's easy to pick on. <laughs> let's say I were to come up with a rumor about something that Pastor Terry did and it impugned his character. Let's say I were to do that. Then every, if, if, if I impugned his character, I don't have to come up with 50 different rumors about all the different things. That one thing makes everyone look at him as though he's less. Just that one thing. I don't have to come up, well, he did this and he did that and he did this and he did that. Well, that's, this is what James is saying. When you break one law of God, you have broken the whole thing. Let me give it a different way. All right, see this, see this water here? It is purified water. It is purified water. Okay, with knowing that, how many would drink it? You know, if y'all wouldn't drink it, how many would drink it if it's purified water? Come on. All right, now, let's say I go into the bathroom, and I pour half of it out, and I take dirty, nasty toilet water, and I fill it halfway with it. How many would drink it then? I know there's always usually one of the teenagers, I do it, man. Anyway, we wouldn't let you do it. We wouldn't let you. All right, why? It's nasty. All right, well, let me give you a different example. How about if I just went in and just took one drop and put it in here? How many would drink it then? Well, what's the difference? If you contaminated one, you contaminated the whole thing. If you break one law, it's as though you broke the whole thing. If I take a balloon filled with air and I put one pinprick, I let all the air out. This is what he's, this is what he's getting to. So what is he saying? You cannot live double-minded. Either all of your faith belongs to Christ and you live towards others in the law of love. You either love your neighbor, you're either charitable and loving, or you're not. There's not an in-between. There's not some who you're loving and others who you're not. Y'all follow that? That's not hard to get, is it? All right, then he goes on here and he, he goes to the second chapter. Not the second chapter, the second part of the chapter. And he gets down to this. um, Wow. And he gets down to this part about faith and works. That we just went through, I just read. And maybe I'll get there. What is he saying? He's saying, is it possible to have a faith that is not demonstrated and be saved? And what's the answer? No. That's what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, what he's doing here, and this is really, really important to get. He's not putting faith against works. What he's doing is he's contrasting two different kinds of faith. He's saying there's one kind of faith that is about a creedal statement or a status. 
in which you believe you have because you have recited the proper things or done a proper ritual. And you think now, hey, I'm baptized. I believe the Bible is true. I'm in. Versus having a life that demonstrates what I believe. There's a, there's, a, uh, there's a scholar, many of you heard me talk about Jordan Peterson, and people have asked him over and over and over again, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? And, he, and I've watched him answer this question so many times, and he, and he struggles. He says, I really, really struggle with that question. There's a fundamental problem with that question. You're like, there's a problem with the question. Either you believe or you don't. No. What does it mean to believe? If you're asking me to give you a statement, that's not what I think that means. I think what it means is it means my life demonstrates it. And so what he says is, here's how I answer that. I answer that by saying, I live as though he exists. What's his point? His point is, as he faces the issues and challenges his life, and he has a choice to make, his choice is going to be based on, is God and his word real and true or not? I'm like, that's actually not a bad answer. That's not a bad answer. And I think that's what James is saying here. He talks about, you know, if you, you, see, you see someone who's poorly clothed and doesn't have any food, and you say, go, go in peace, be warm and filled. You know, it's interesting in the grammar. That could be where you're just saying, hey, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. Now, look, should we be praying for one another? Absolutely. But to use that as, an, as a spiritual excuse to not act, James says, that's evil. That's evil. Elsewhere, the scripture tells us what? If you have this world's goods and your brother or sister is in need and you don't share them, you're no different than the world. That's not faith. He says, um, come on. Okay, this keeps jumping around. So, I literally hit the button and it literally jumps to a whole different place. I've got to fix my computer. I apologize. Um, but I have it up here, so I'm just going to go from there. Is that all right? Can we do that? It says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and we say go at peace, he says, without giving them the things in need, what good is that? So also, faith by itself that does not have works is dead. What is he saying? If I, if I am living by the fact that I'm telling somebody good spiritual things and my life is not backing that up, then you don't actually really have faith. He says that's double-mindedness. That's being double-minded. Why? Because you're saying one thing and doing another. That's double-mindedness. And what did he say earlier? Let not that person think he will receive anything from the Lord. He goes on, but someone will say, I, uh, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And I say, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What does he mean there? You see, he's setting up this imaginary opponent over here and, and the imaginary opponent says, you show me your faith. Uh, 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 back up. Let me say it differently. You have faith and I have works. And what he's, the argument that we're making, that he's making here is a little bit complicated. It's a little bit complicated. So focus in for a second. What he's saying is there's an imaginary argument that some people will say faith is faith and works is works and they're two separate things. 
That's what the imaginary opponent, that's what he's talking about. There are some people say, no, 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 no. Faith is faith. I have faith is what I believe. And you can believe what you want to believe, and I can believe what I want to believe. It doesn't really matter what's true. It just matters what we believe, right? And then I have over here works. And there are some people who can live by works saying, you know, I'm just going to be a good person. It doesn't really matter. I don't really know what it is in the end. And you know what, what James is saying? No, you have it all mixed up. He's saying, if you think that's a real faith, I'm going to tell you, if you want to know what real faith is, it's how we live our lives. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. And he, here's the example he uses. And this is a fascinating example. He says, you believe that God is one and you do well. Okay, here's, again, this is why the introduction was so important. Who is he writing to? He's writing to Jewish believers around the world. Okay, he's writing that. And he says this phrase, you believe that God is one. Immediately, immediately his audience would have cued in. This is the first and greatest commandment. This is the Shema. This is Deuteronomy 6. This is, hear O Lord, uh, uh, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He's quoting from the Torah, the foundational statement of faith for Judaism. Which means if you, which, and he's making two points here. If you are trusting that you can say that and you think that it's real, and if you are trusting in your status that that's your verse, it's meaningless if it's not backed up by action. He said, how do you want to know? He says, because the demons themselves agree with that. In fact, they take it one further step than you, you do. They're scared to death of it. They not only say it, they not only believe it, they not only agree with it, they're scared to death of it. His point being is, why aren't you? Might lead you to action. And he goes, he goes, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Do you want to see it? And he gives an example. Who does he go to? Again, who's he talking to? He's talking to a Jewish audience. Who does he use? He uses Abraham, the father of faith. He goes straight to Abraham, and he says, Abraham was what? Abraham was, was, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it, counted, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Okay, so the way James is wording this is, again, it's very masterful. It's very masterful. Why? Because what he words first is he words first Abraham taking Isaac and putting him on the altar in obedience to God. And then the voice of God calls out and says, Abraham, I now know I have tested your faith. By the way, that's tying all the way back to chapter one. Count it all joy when your faith is tested, my friends. This is all connected. I have tested your faith, and you have proven it to be real. Now, he's quoting this. Guess where that happens in Genesis? That happens in Genesis 22. 22. Well, guess what happens multiple, a couple of decades before that, approximately? Is, is what he says in uh, the 23rd verse. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let me, let me put it a different way. In Genesis 15, Genesis 15, God calls, in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. Genesis 15, he confirms the covenant with Abraham. He confirms it. 
And he says, and he tells Abraham, you are righteous by your faith. Because you have believed me, because you have trusted in me, you are righteous. And that is the righteousness all of us come into. It is imputed to us through Christ. How many know none of us are righteous in our own works and our own goodness? That is not the starting point. See, that's Paul's argument. That's what Paul, Paul is teaching about how we come into it. James is talking about once you've come in, how do you live it? That's the difference between the two. He says, you come into it, you are made righteous by Jesus. Abraham was made righteous by his faith. And then he did what? Genesis 22, seven chapters later, he proves it out by laying his son on the altar. His obedience to the word of God shows that he has a real faith. That's what James means when he says he is justified by his works. He doesn't mean that he did something and earned favor by God. He means this. This justification, righteousness, means what? It means that, okay, so we put this again. This is understanding the Jewish background of what's going on. In Jewish thinking, justification comes at court. You're justified when you go to court. Okay, and when does court come? At the end, when I'm going to be judged. So when I'm at the end and I'm going to be judged and I'm standing before the judge of all the world, it's at that moment I hope I'm justified. And how am I going to be justified at that moment? Am I going to have a faith that somebody could look at and went, yes, that was a real faith. That was a real faith. The judge isn't going to sit there and say, write out your creed for me. This is his point. The judge isn't going to sit there and say, oh, that doctrinal point was off by three places. Sorry. The judge is going to say, was the predominance of your life demonstrating that you did not vacillate between uh, uh, embracing the world as your God and embracing me as your God? It doesn't mean you lived sinless perfection. It means you lived a life where you loved others, where you cared about others, where you put others first, where you demonstrated that God was your God. Now, how else does he say this? He goes on and he uses a second example. He says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. This is a fascinating, an absolutely fascinating example to use. Who was she? A prostitute. This is Rahab the prostitute. Even worse, she was a Canaanite. She was a citizen of the city of Jericho, a Canaanite, uh, under the condemnation of God, about to be destroyed. This is who she was, right? So by the law of God, if I hold the law of God up, is she innocent or guilty? She's guilty. And, she, and he is using her as an example of one who is justified. You see, again, it's not about being justified because of what she's earned, about living perfection. It's being justified because what was different and distinct about her? I'll tell you exactly what it was. She was willing to put the, her own safety online because she believed that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was going to keep his word. She believed that that God was going to do what he said he was going to do and therefore hid his messengers, protected his messengers at the cost of her own safety. And God says, that's the kind of faith I'm looking for. How do we know that? Because she marries a guy named Salmon and the two of them have have a son named Boaz. 
Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, meets this woman called Ruth, who's a Moabitess, also under a curse because of the sins of the nation, and welcomes her in and marries her in order to raise up the name of her husband, demonstrating faith. And the two of them have a great-grandson whose name is King David. Now that's faith that gets passed on. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. What is he saying here? He's saying that, he's saying don't hit the button on your computer anymore. Saying what? Saying, listen, if we, have, if we say we have faith that doesn't follow by works, we are double-minded. We are unstable. He said, and if you want to be whole, if you want to work, walk in completeness, in maturity, if you want to walk in what he would call perfection, not the way we see it, the way he's seeing it, then you need to trust. And trusting means what? Trusting means you are going to live towards others and towards God in a way that is going to be according to love. Am I treating others charitably? Am I laying my life down for others? Am I obeying God's will? Am I seeking? Not, not did I get it perfect? Not did everything happen right? Look, are we to strive uh, to walk in that? Yes, but don't sacrifice the real for the ideal. Don't sit down and beat yourself up because I, I failed here and stopped walking because I'm sitting over here looking at perfection. We have a saying, we've been talking about this the past, past few days in our house. Don't sacrifice progress at the altar of perfection. Don't sacrifice progress at the altar of perfection. What does that mean? Continue to examine your heart. Continue to open up your heart and say, Lord, where is it that I am double-minded? How is it that I am double-minded? Don't look at a place where you failed and go, that's it, it's over, I've failed, done. But begin to, to return and repent. And this is the message of James. He keeps giving over and over and over. Return, return, return. So now I can't actually hit the button. So James is giving us two ways. He gives us the way of life and the way of death. The way of life is a real living faith that's demonstrated by loving actions. What kind of loving actions? Well, one of them is not being partial. How do you see others? How do you treat others? Do you treat others as imagers of God? Do you see them as, the, as, as potential temples of the living God? Or do you make judgments based on the way of the world? Do you look at status? Are you judging yourself by your own status? Do you think it's because I've got proper doctrine or because I've been baptized or I've done certain ritual that that somehow makes you a thing? And then therefore you can go live how you want. Or is it about me trying to figure out and struggle with God? That's what Israel means, by the way, the one who struggles with God. Am I trying to struggle with God and get this thing right? Am I continuing to return and return? Listen, when he says, when, when he says uh, if anyone lacks wisdom, 
um, uh, let him ask without doubting, he doesn't mean not without questions. You cannot be human and not have questions. I was just talking to my my daughter the other day. I hope she doesn't mind. She probably won't mind. She's not here, right? I can talk about her. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, That was a joke. Uh, I won't reveal anything. It's not that, you know, I'm making it even worse. There's not, let me just say it. She was struggling. She was struggling because God had called her to be somewhere and things were tough. They were hard. And she was like, why is it hard if God's called me to this? Shouldn't it be that God called me and everything should just open up and be easy? Listen, if your faith isn't tested, it's useless. If your faith isn't tested, then all the, then, then the, that which is double-minded in you never comes out. Let me tell you what tested faith means. It says that we're to be endure under testing. Here's the word picture. The word picture is anybody ever watch the Olympics and they watch this, those guys that, that, you know, do the snatch and they're picking up these bars with more weights on either end than we can count. And they're holding it up like this and that bar is bent and you see them straining there. Okay. That's what endurance means. It means to hold up under the weight. That's endurance. He says, now when you do that, When you do that, what God is doing in you is getting rid of double-mindedness. There's something that happens when we go through these struggles and endure and God begins to, um, uh, God begins to work out of us our partialities, our status. And, and why? And here's why. Because sometimes the strongest faith you, that can be exhibited is a faith that looks completely weak. Let me say that again. Sometimes the strongest possible faith that can be exhibited is a faith that looks completely weak. And what is that? It's a faith that is in the middle of all of this weight, doesn't know how it's going to endure, and goes to God and says, I got nowhere else to go. I got questions. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. But I got nowhere else to go. That's a faith that's not vacillating. And it's only a faith you can have if it's tested. It's not about your works, but it's surely demonstrated through them. Comes out in the law of love. Amen. Mm-hmm.